Uh, now, with that business out of the way, um, this is the first in a series of events that we at Londonist are organising with Conway Hall. Um, the next one is called London is Wild on the 2nd of November, and then a final one in December about London is Drinking. Um, but you're all here today to, for us to talk about London is Changing. Um, I think the events of this weekend, um, the vandalism down in Shoreditch, uh, show just how vital this topic is. Um, at the moment. It's an extremely complex issue. We only have about an hour and a half in which to try and uh, cover it all off, um, but it's very often boiled down to phrases like gentrification, hipsters, class war, property developers, and so on. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that London has always been changing. Um, it's like the proverbial black cab driver saying that London will be great when it's finished. Um, this is a city that's been changing ever since it first emerged. Um, Neighbourhoods have come and gone. People that once left the city in droves, and now it's a desirable place to be again. Um, so today we're going to be exploring, is today's pace of change atypical? Is it a good or a bad thing? What are the positives? What do we face losing? What's London, what's London going to look like 100 years from now? Anyway, it's, it's, it's an hour and a half, so we've got a lot to pack in. Um, for those of you who were expecting uh, Anna Minton today uh, and are suddenly seeing a guy with a beard, um, it's, it's not a mistake. Uh, unfortunately, Anna's unwell, um, so uh, John Rogers, we're very lucky to have John Rogers here. He stepped in at the last minute, so thanks, John. Um, I will stop talking now and ask the panel to introduce themselves very briefly and very briefly set out their stall, starting with Ian Sinclair, please. Uh, yeah. I lived in London by accident for a long time. I came to Hackney for a weekend in 1967, and I'm still there in the same place. So this shows a profound lack of imagination on my part, <laughs> and also a profound sense of how magnetic and interesting a city this is. For all the difficulties and all the arguments I'm sure we'll pass through this evening, there, there's something at the root of the place that, that grips us. Just listening to the conversations in the green room where people were talking about uh, mysterious lost rivers, um, rivers that passed under basements, discovering uh, earthworks in the suburbs of the city, all of those kind of things. There are endlessly intriguing elements in this pattern of settlement, as why something came out of the sediment of the river, why it stayed here. The city we're in now, I think, is, is more challenging and difficult than ever before. I think of it, in a way, as a kind of last London. It's a London that's on the pivot between a digital city and an actual city, and that, 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 that for the first time, groups of people literally just do not see each other. The plural nature of the city is fascinating, but I see people literally just walking past. There are, there are rough sleepers in the same grounds as very wealthy uh, incomers on literally the same park. Um, and the fact that they don't notice each other, there are no collisions, means that it's a city that's fragmenting. I'm sure we're going to cover that. There are, there are positives we can discover. One of the biggest positives for me is in terms of protest. Things got so bad that the quality of the opposition got, got interesting for the first time. There's a sense of community, a sense of people demanding that localities have an identity. We're not going to be worn away entirely into a corporate world. We're not going to fall for some of the things that we've seen. You can see it in politics at the moment that the main thing is to try and find some germ of the real in a world that's, that's constantly been involved with spin and faceless characters and dubious 
immoral decisions all around that have made us what we are today. So that there are big challenges in front of us, and I'm sure we're going to go through them tonight. Super, thank you. Um, Helen. Hello. Uh, good evening, everyone. My name is Helen Parton. I edit a design magazine called On Office, um, which covers uh, workplace and contemporary architecture. Um, I've been writing about um, contemporary property, architecture and design um, for over 10 years. I've been in London for um, coming up for 15. Um, and in my job, and I guess in my personal life as well, I've seen many great examples of how areas are changing and how gentrification be, can be a force for good, which is why I was asked to write an article for an NGO um, in my previous guise as a freelance writer about um, the positive impact of gentrification. So that's something that I hope to bring to the debate this evening. Hello. Sorry for not being Anna Minton, by the way. <laughs> She's really good on the privatisation of public space. So I can't do that as well as Anna at all. Um, and having a beard. I mean, hipsters now, I mean, it's, it's become a catch-all, hasn't it? For anyone with yes. a beard. I mean, my, one of my questions about tonight is, why am I not a hipster? Uh, is it because I'm over 40? And uh, kind of like our hipster hatred, I think sometimes is our hatred of, or our sort of like envy of young people, actually. I think that's something that would be interesting to explore tonight, particularly in light of what happened over the weekend. Um, I'm the author of a book called This Other London, um, which is available at the back. You're terrible. I thought I'd be the first to get a crude plug-in. Uh, and for the course of that book, part of, I've lived in London since 1989, on and off. I moved here as a student, and I lived in Forest Gate and uh, studied in the East End, near Brick Lane, and um, I, I set out to explore the London I didn't really know. And one of the motifs that, many motifs occurred, but one of them that particularly sort of struck me, and kind of, I think the book has been a really positive book, and I am very optimistic and positive about London, but it's very difficult to ignore the, the, the pattern you see of former public buildings becoming converted into luxury apartments, and that's something you see everywhere you go. And underpins it is you see the civic pride that, that brought these buildings into existence seems to have been completely absent from our local authorities at the moment as well. And that, that's something uh, which was difficult to avoid when you, when you walk around London with your eyes open. Um, the other thing I suppose I'll bring to this evening is over the last year, I've been uh, make, uh, producing a YouTube channel called Drift Report. So I've been making videos about some of the campaigns and struggles going on from the New Era estate to Sweets Way estate in North London. Great, and Tom. I've, I'm a writer, so I've written two books, one about lost London rivers, tracing them through the existing London streetscape, and another called Vanished City, which is about parts of London that have disappeared over the, over the years for various different reasons. So I'm interested in change and the perspective that looking at London in different times gives you on where we are now, and the sense it gives you that the London we have that is around us right now is anything but permanent. So the more you look at the past, the more you get the sense that we're living in an illusion, and so is everybody else, and everything is a passing moment flowing on to something else. Particularly if you try and pin down a line through the city, a, a particular route, walk a particular route such as a buried river, over and over again over the course of several years, you quickly discover that almost everything about it has, has moved, changed, gone, and that blocks have disappeared. You can't remember what was there before. So in some ways, I think London is designed to to shift and change constantly. But on the other hand, I have um, fairly strong views about, about a number of issues in London around inequality and loss of identity and um, loss of distinctiveness, really. And I think that the debate and the way it's conducted at the moment 
isn't very effective. It's very general. It's full of um, anger. But there's still, although some effective protest um, and some effective lobbying, there isn't really the focus on the things that matter, the things that matter to people, probably people in this room. But it'd be interesting to find out what you think it is that really matters about London now. Mm. Um, on that point, I very much would like this for it to be a conversation among all of us, not just people on the stage and people watching. This is very much kind of group conversation. We appear to be up high for some reason, but um, uh, that's, that's just so we can all fit in. Um, so if you do have um, a question or you have a comment that you want to make or that you, you it's, that's, that comes up just in, in, at your head at any point, don't wait until the end. Um, put your hand up. I'm going to try and keep my eye on the incredible number of people that are here. Um, if you can't, if I'm not looking at you, just start waving frantically and someone with a mic will come and, uh, will come and bring it over. Um, let's just get a little bit warmed up for that um, because I want to ask you a few questions before we get into the meat of this. Um, I'd quite like to know uh, which proportion of the audience here owns their own home and which proportion of you is a renter. So could you please put your hand up if you own your own home? Probably about a quarter or so, maybe a little bit more, some, maybe some slightly reticent hands. Um, and put your hand up if you're a renter or you live with your parents or somebody else like that. Live with my parents. I don't live with Oops. my parents, sorry, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they won't have me. You know. <laughs> Great, thank you. It's the beard. Um, a lot, of, a lot of people talk about uh, community and the sense of community, so I want to know how many of you honestly, hand on heart, can tell me the names of the people who live on both sides of you? Good. We're a friendly bunch then. Very nice. Um, and put your hand up if you describe yourself as a Londoner. Ooh. Ooh. There are some people who don't. That's interesting. Shout out, I want to hear why you think you're a Londoner. Um, blonde hair, glasses in the front row, just shout it out. Great, great. Uh, lived in Islington his whole life, um, same place, it's the only city he's known. Um, who, who else says they are a Londoner? Yep, why are you a Londoner? Great, lovely, grew up in Hackney, still living there. And over there? First place you felt at home. Brilliant. That's how I feel too. Um, right, and also, this is the big one. Are you for or against gentrification? Put your hands up if you're for gentrification. <laughs> <laughs> Very brave of you. Anybody else? Against? Well, this is what we'll come on to later. <laughs> um, so... What is gentrification? <laughs> uh, gentrification is quite a divisive term uh, used uh, to represent anything, I think, from regeneration to uh, the selling off of, of social housing for profits to shouting at people who have beards. Uh, uh, so... Um, I want to talk. I want to hear from the panel, and then please do put your hands up. We've got people with mics um, who will come and talk to you later. Um, what's your kind of experience of gentrification? What's good and bad examples? Um, Tom, you said you had some feelings around this, um, especially 
good, bad examples? Or have you got anything that you particularly feel are pertinent, things that we should be talking about around gentrification? How do you define it? Well, I think gentrification is a very unhelpful term because it means whatever people choose it to mean. So it's used in lots of different ways in different conversations with very different um, different implications. Regeneration is also regeneration is a very widely accepted term, but that carries a lot of a lot of implications which aren't really discussed and thought about enough, I think. So I think it's important to understand what gentrification is. And it's part in some ways of a process of change in London that goes over long periods of time, longer than individual lifetimes. So areas that are being gentrified were often built for um, upper middle class Victorians to move into um, and then the city lost its, its appeal for various different reasons. And those areas went downhill socially, as it were, and now they're changing again. So it is part of a cycle or a, a wave pattern, perhaps. Uh, but I think the other bit of context that we need to apply to this is that London is, it's only just recovered from the Second World War. So before the war, London had um, its highest ever population in 1939. Bombing, evacuation, and then the way that London was developed and people moved out of the city after the war meant that the population was still declining until the mid-90s or um, thereabouts and started increasing after that. It's only very recently this year that London has become bigger than it's ever been before. So I think we are now perhaps in a different era, a time when you can't see London as being um, comparable to previous versions of itself. But before that, all this time when London was empty and there was space, I think that may have been a passing moment, and maybe it'll come again. But London is popular, and in many ways that's a, that's a good thing. But it also causes problems, and those need to be defined, I think. I think you can't talk about gentrification as a process as though it's the same thing everywhere. Yeah, well, I think we're, we're, you know, gentrification really is, is an old question. The more relevant question now is that it's becoming a ghost city, that, that for the first time ever, people are buying buildings that they don't intend to live in. Mm. So you're getting whole tranches of the city that are literally empty because property has reached the critical point where it becomes simply an investment. And on the other hand, there are numerous people um, young people starting up would have to achieve a very high income just to be able to get any kind of foothold in this at all. So, so you're getting a very, very strange city being created. And I think it's the first time that I, I can know of whereby the, the city, the property of the city was literally being treated as a stock, that it wasn't to do with someone um, trying to improve an area, which, you know, the gentrification thing of people trying to create villages within run-down urban areas where they pretended they were living in the Cotswolds. Now they actually do live in the Cotswolds and they're <laughs> somewhere empty in London. And so it's, it's a very strange, very difficult time. I mean, Ian, um, would you oh, describe yourself as a, as a gentrifier in the, in the kind of 1960s? Well, in a, kind um, of, in a sense, yes, because... Um, it, if you could describe me as a gentrifier, because I was, uh, at that time, I, I was um, working as a labourer in Truman's Brewery, which was itself kind of gentrifying by ceasing to be a grungy brewery and buying up all the land around there as a property speculation to create the new Brick Lane. I was moving into a, a house that was condemned. Um, this is a Victorian 1850s terrace that was going to be pulled down to put up, um, extend the, the tower blocks of uh, Holly Street. And so these houses were being virtually given away. I, I was gentrifying, but yet, on the other hand, you had to force people to move into these houses. And uh, recent immigrants who'd come and were offered 
very large houses on places like Albion Square, refused them because they, they, they wanted to be in a nice, clean, new place with showers and kitchens and things. The kind of houses I was in in 1968 had an outside lavatory and a tin bath, and that was common to this entire terrace. But nevertheless, the kind of process of uh, people who fancy themselves to be artists, or later they were often people who worked for museums or whatever, crept into this territory, changed the nature of it. And now, the self-same territory, you know, you would have to be a millionaire to buy into it. Will Young lived round the corner, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> the corner house, which once belonged to Charlie Cray, the elder Cray, was, was then passed on to a high court judge. <laughs> this is a process that happens over a few years in London. It's like watching a sort of crazy movie. Um, there's no logic to it. So I think that, that kind of gentrifying term doesn't really work. Um, pe people, there was, a, there was a big movement, obviously, of uh, the kind of people that liked urban life and had not very much money going to places where property values were very cheap. And, and it, was, it was also a point when generally the thing of, of renting was beginning to creep over into people actually deciding they could buy. It would never have occurred to me, even remotely, but having lived in a communal house, somebody in the house actually got out when we were thrown out and, and bought a small property in Hackney. And I thought, God, you know, that seems amazing. And uh, what, what it cost to do it was exactly the fee I got for doing a, a film about Allen Ginsberg. So it was kind of weird that the counterculture <laughs> put me on the property ladder. <laughs> it, it is a the thing that's impossible at the level of my children when they came through. None of them could, could afford to be in Hackney. No, where they've grown and that's up. It. The, that, that, that growth of the development of the property price is, is what's made it very attractive to property developers. And um, Helen, did you want to come in? Yeah, yeah, I did want to come in. I think it's interesting that the focus has been <clears throat> so much on East London and, and particularly Brick Lane and the areas that you talk about. But mm -hmm. there are lots of other areas within London. So if I was a younger creative coming into, into London, why I don't know why there's a fixation with East London. There are lots of other areas lots of other unpopular, unfashionable areas that young, young creatives can go to. If, you want, if you're a young creative, be as creative with where you're living as well as what you're doing. Go to the outer reaches, go to Croydon, go to Barking, go to Tottenham, go and create your own activities, go and create your own you know, pocket of London that you can call your own, rather than East London that's already been made its own and already reached a critical mass. Yeah, but this, this was a process. I mean, at the time I did that, essentially, most of it, most of what we now think of as Hackney was Notting Hill and it kind of spread around Notting Hill. Notting Hill itself, the north part, North Kensington, was, was very run down and difficult. Rotting Hill, as Wyndham, Wyndham Lewis called it. <laughs> you know. And um, the move to go to Hackney was, was quite extreme. It was equivalent to moving out to Dagenham now. It was yeah. like that. And, and equally now, obviously, if, you know, just as you say, if you've got imagination, well, you will move out to Dagenham yeah. or wherever. You, but it's harder and harder to do because... Uh, Everything is, is a quantum leap into, into much more expensive. You can't, you can't do it in the way that we did. And so essentially that kind of freelance anarchic lifestyle that allowed me to spend years doing odd, odd jobs and running a small press just can't be done now. It, it, we've it, seen the results of that. I mean, you've seen that firsthand at Sweets Way and, and so on. Yeah, and also I think what, what Helen, you said, Helen, is, is already happening. I mean, Tottenham's hipster paradise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, my favourite brewery is based in Tottenham. I mean, it really is a sea of beards. You go up there on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> honestly, it's like wading through a forest. Um, <laughs> 
tell us about some of the like experiences that you've seen that um, when you when you do get that rise in house prices and all of a sudden you you find that those um, that social housing that the land that it's on essentially becomes um, very desirable and it becomes very valuable and you've seen the the extremely upsetting impacts of that on, on yeah. people that have lived there. But I also I also think it's you know it's easy to get upset at the serial killer cafe for example because <laughs> it's like a cut it's like a bad joke from Nathan Barley isn't it when I saw it I just thought. <laughs> Oh my God, you know, that would have probably been rejected from the original script. So if you've never seen Nathan Barley, I highly recommend it. Um, and, but, but it's not, I don't think that's really the problem. And what you have, like in, in the London Borough of Barnet, or the Rotten Borough of Barnet, as I like to call it, mm-hmm. is you know, you have the council giving away social housing estates to, to Barrett Home, <coughs> not selling it, giving it away. So whereas I suppose when Ian. Other people were sort of buying derelict houses in places like Hackney and Camden in the 60s. There, were pl- there was, there was a plenty of social housing. I mean, I turned down a council flat, you know, in Homerton in the early 90s. I mean, you could, you could buy a rent book in a pub, actually, and, uh, which was, I think was possibly illegal. But uh, they were also would give out rent books. They'd have a meeting sort of once a month in a, a state hall. We'd go along, and the first 200 people through the door got a flat. Um, so gentrification happened alongside other processes that were provided. So there was a safety net, whereas now there is no safety net. But I think there are now some, some really imaginative solutions. I mean, uh, the older solution at the time where I was doing that was squatting, which was just mm. come Redbridge and places, there were, there were real battles over squatting, mm. very hard, frontline type battles between people who saw acres of council property that was not being used. The councils were often letting these houses rot away, mm. and people moved in and occupied them. But that was a sort of a putting yourself into an embattled situation. Now, of relate, there's been this movement, which I've been very interested in, is whereby people put up huts within the city that look like builders' huts. They slide in, you know, and they uh, padlock them, and they've created these urban bothies whereby people are living for free, and you just don't see them. They're invisible. So you go, you go through parts of the city, and somebody has put up quite a large hut, and uh, people come and go through it, but they, they may wear high-vis and a hard hat, and nobody <laughs> sees them, they're invisible. <laughs> and they're living there for nothing, and there are these communities. So there are kind of strange solutions you can come yeah. up with that, that are they're not the answer to the problem, yeah. because nobody's going to live forever in there, but while you're, while you're young and uh, reasonably brave and put a phrase on it, you can, you can actually do things like that and nobody will notice. And there were a couple of interesting things that came out of the Sweets Way um, movement, if you like, and which, I don't know if, if, if you're not familiar, but you know, there was a large housing estate in, in uh, Barnet near Whetstone, D- dubious ownership, something dodgy went, I think it was owned by the MOD and then it was kind of given to a private developer pretty much, I think they bought it for a pound, and, but, but after the MOD finished using it, it was populated by people from the housing list and who'd lived there for about 10 years and then suddenly they were very aggressively evicted, in many cases misled over the processes by which they could be rehoused and they were tricked into giving up their right to social housing or to being rehoused and then they were just ejected into the private sector. Uh, to fend for themselves, many people on benefits, many people uh, on low income, and they couldn't afford, you know, you can imagine what happened. But out of that process, it started with a sleepover that was organised by, by people, a, a collaboration of residents on the estate who were fighting for their homes, and kind of floating activists and people getting active for the first time. They, they organised this sleepover, some of the sleepovers get people down, and people did turn up, and then some of them just stayed. 
to um, occupy the empty homes. And you have two wonderful solutions side by side. One is the London's newest independent microstate, the Independent Republic of Sweetstopia. I urge you to go and visit. It's a wonderful place. And behind the kind of colourfulness of it, you know, and their laws about no knitting after dark and don't feed the unicorns and things like that, they're, you know, they're practising permaculture. They're developing new models of decision-making. Um, across the road, some residents have returned to an empty house, and they've shown how you can regenerate the homes using very little money and skills from within the community. So the, the, the materials they've used to do up the homes, which the councils often use the excuse for estate regeneration, is that there's no funds available to regenerate these estates. We have to sell them to the private sector. That's the only way we can afford to keep these, these buildings in use. But of course, they don't get, they go out of public use. Now, on Sweets Way, the, the residents themselves have regenerated partly regenerated some of the houses on the estate, and they've made a really beautiful job of it. That's using recycled materials, donated materials, materials sold at cost from local building suppliers. And so you're getting solutions like this coming to rebut the arguments that there is no alternative, that this is an unstoppable tide of capitalism and there's nothing we can do, it's global forces, etc. There are solutions, and there are people practicing them, you know. I think it's important that um, people think about the specific problems that that can be solved through protest or um, through offering alternatives. And there's quite a lot of that happening, it's true at the moment. But I think some of these, some of these protests, some of these uh, no, ex explosions of anger over change come a bit too late because a lot of what we've lost is ordinary things, things that we don't really think about very hard until it's, it's past, their, past the time to do something about it. So this includes uh, public space that you can access without any kind of restriction. I think people generally assumed that was just the way it was, and then the model really changed. In London, there's a lot, as I think Anna Menton would, would undoubtedly say if she was here, lots of uh, privately managed space in which you cannot do what you want in any way at all. Uh, but also things like uh, industrial estates. So there's a lot of industrial space in London in which things are made, and this isn't the, kind of, the general perception of London as a manufacturing city, but a lot is made in London and distributed and it, it needs space to do that, and that space is increasingly worth a lot more for other things. So there's a lot of pressure on ordinary industrial estates, which people don't give a second glance to on the whole, in places like Tottenham and Walthamstow and Charlton. Charlton has the two biggest wharfs in London, which were protected until recently, where the majority of building material for London is offloaded from, um, from, from you know, various ships, or a significant portion of it's offloaded. And those, those wharves are much more valuable as riverside housing, and it's harder to protect them now. It's in the hands of the mayor to make those decisions. But I think the ordinary things that help a city to work, um, space for the unglamorous stuff, ordinary shops, corner shops, for example, disappearing um, and being replaced by Tesco Expresses and so on in many places, you don't appreciate that until, until you don't see it there anymore. So I think it's up to us to think a bit harder about what it is that makes London work well now that we might not want to see going in future. I mean, pubs are the obvious example of that, but that's a, a well-discussed a well area, really. I think um, a lot of people forget that actually um, local councils and planning authorities are often hamstrung by central government, um, which is you know, um, policy around um, you don't need planning permission to turn an industrial unit into, into flats, for example, by which you know, the government is trying to solve a housing problem, so puts out these, oh, it's okay, if you want to turn a shop into a bunch of flats, that's great, you can do it without needing planning permission. 
you have to have special exemption, like the, I think it's Kensington and Chelsea has special exemption, there's a couple of other councils that are applying for that, um, to actually actively prevent developers coming in and saying, no, that's okay, we'll just take your shop and we'll turn it into flats, um, mm. because we can make loads more money out of it. Um, it I think, really, it's, it's, it's massively incumbent upon uh, local councils now um, and planning authorities to, to, to exercise more power and to be more ballsy about what they, what they want their community to look like and how yeah, that community yeah. should be. When, when local councils are exercising their power, the results are not always so great. Um, there's a street, Dalston Lane is a, was a fairly classic example, in that there was a series of um, small businesses. It was, a, it was a rather attractive high street at one time. It became very run down, obviously, with, with Georgian Terrace, uh, a Victorian theatre, all of these elements. And the council in, would not, when the council took an interest in this, they, they were in a hole financially, and they would not allow any of these individual businesses to buy their own property and carry on. They wanted to sell them as blocks. Mm. Now, what happened then was that uh, people who dug their heels in or applied for preservation orders actually found their properties going up in smoke. We, we were, I was actually with John Rogers the other day. We were walking through here with a, um, a local activist who pointed out this. There were, there were 13 fires occurred in these, the buildings, none of which has ever been investigated. Um, one of them, uh, there's a music shop there, and there's, there's some, there were squatters in the property trying to protect it behind. And someone knocked on the door in the evening and said, you better leave today because this is going up in smoke tonight. And they were gone. And I was staring across the road at this this afternoon and I saw on the side of the building, on the opposite side of the street, this sort of ironic, it used to be a police station, again converted. Mm. So notice on the side, fire assembly point. I thought this is, <laughs> this is a, a sort of grim, but it's a grim portrait of what can happen when you have an, a kind of imposed vision from above that uh, took out this particular building. I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm not fighting to keep every single building that's there in London, but there was a particular building that had been um, a circus building, which had wonderful ar architectural features. But more than that, it had life. So it became a musical. So by the 1920s, it had converted itself again into a state-of-the-art cinema, which became a reason for people to pour into the area with the railway that con contacted you to uh, Liverpool Street and out. And then by the 1960s, it had become a blues club, and there was a lot of good black music came in for the first time. By the, by the 90s, it was uh, giving itself over to the rave culture, and every generation managed to change the nature of this building. So it was a sort of symbol of a community, and lots of people remembered how their parents and grandparents had met dances in this place. And then overnight, it has to go to create what, what Bill Parry Davis, who was uh, part of Open Dalston, called the slab, which is just this big concrete slab which was to provide transport for the Olympics, which was required, bus transport. But actually, only one bus goes there, and it doesn't go to Stratford. So it's, it's a complete sort of disaster. And to pay for that, you have an enormous Barrett's home put up, which does provide housing, but it also provides a very strange kind of non-space environment, a generic environment that could be anywhere. Mm. And that, that sense of the magic of the locality is destroyed. And the street now is extraordinarily weird. I mean, it has, it has great things in it that have come in, and it has ruined things. And the, the big loss is a little library that was there has become something else, which is not really a library at all. It's a kind of a video store, come cafe, come 
place for social notices. Mm. Um, I think we had a couple of hands up. Can, who's got the mic? Yeah, brilliant. And there's a guy in a white T-shirt with glasses there, and then I'll come to you on the end. Uh, put your hand up higher. Wave. Yep, good. Oh, hang on. Yeah, can you hear me? Um, there we go. Yeah, yeah good. Uh, yeah, uh, just to speak up for Deep Nail Fashion Board West London, uh, yes. where I live currently. Uh, <laughs> got West we, London. We, we had a situation where um, there's a lot of new developments going up in there. So there's Earl's Court, uh, yep, which yes. is very controversial. Absolutely. Um, there's also something in Shepherd's Bush Market, and that was a case where you actually had the council compulsory purchasing land, mm. not for the public works, but to sell to a developer. Um, and I know that's kind of been challenged because the council's gone from Tory to Labour yeah. now. But, um, you know, that's crazy because that market's been there for years and they've just bought it up for housing and no one's, with the benefit cap now, no one's going to be able to afford to live there uh, who, who is on a, on a low income. So it's just, it's ridiculous. So councils aren't always <laughs> the, the um, you know... The best for the no, no, you're absolutely right. There's, there's so many. Um, it's, Can I jump in with a good example? Please do. Yes, <laughs> and then we'll come to you. Okay. So yeah, you were talking about retail and um, the you know the negative impact of gentrification on retail. Um, I recently wrote about a fantastic project that's happening in Tottenham, uh, near where I live, um, and uh, basically Harangay Council are um, employed. So I commissioned some architects um, to look at the shop fronts on um, a number of um, properties on West Green Road and Tottenham High Road. And basically, uh, the architects did a very comprehensive space planning um, uh, plan about um, which shops might be more appropriate. They didn't want to uh, work with any change. They didn't want to work with any, anyone. They wanted to work with independent shops. And um, they work with around 20 of them so far in order to um, just change the, the appearance of the shop front um, to just make it more visually appealing as you walk along those particular shop fronts so that it's not shop after shop covered with Labara, you know, advertising to make it a little bit more, you know, just attractive for the local area. And they work with the shopkeepers and they worked tremendously hard to research the area of, the, of what the actual shops were and the properties and um, the general postcode and just to provide something that the end result was really positive and really impactful. And actually what's interesting is that it's not just those 20 properties that have been transformed and the shop fronts look amazing now. But actually when you walk down there, it's now often difficult, difficult to tell which properties have, you know, been benefited from this particular scheme? And there are other ones that are taking their cues from visually from this type of um, regen regeneration. Mm -hmm. And that's a really positive, impactful way, and a really simple way, and not a, a way that doesn't, you know, isn't a very, doesn't have a very high budget, but something that's really, really positive. And something that we were talking about civic pride, you know, that's one of a really simple visual way to engender civic pride. And that's something that the council's done in collaboration with the local architects. Mm. Yeah, really positive. Um, there was a guy here on the end with glasses. Yep, there we go. Uh, James, you were saying about councils should be more ballsy. Yeah. Um, which I agree with. Um, but most councils in London are just cutting away over the next two years, regardless of... I mean, I live in Camden. The, the council is Labour-controlled, but they are making £2 million worth of cuts in the next two years. So mm. I, I feel it's not actually very realistic. Uh, you see, I don't know. I'm a great believer and, uh, in, in the fact that you can do an awful lot of things with not very much money. Um, <laughs> I, I know that councils are getting squeezed and squeezed and squeezed, and I want to come on to talking about the implication of that for privately owned public spaces a bit later on. Um, but 
it doesn't cost you huge amounts of money, or let me, let me try and phrase this right, it doesn't cost you huge amounts of money to make the right kind of decision and have the right strategic plan for your area, the people that you represent as councillors, as a local authority, for the residents of your borough, to sit down and have a, have a what, do, what do we want our borough to look like in 5, 10, 15 years' time, and how are we going to get there? And it certainly shouldn't be, let's allow people to come along and just build what they want. You can, you can, you can modify, you can allow some very luxury apartments being built and modify that along with allowing um, some, you know, some more community oriented and social housing and so on to be built. Tom, you look like yeah. you're about to jump well, all over me on that one. No, I don't know. I admire your optimism, but I think, <laughs> I think councils will only be providing statutory services shortly because their funding's been cut to that extent. Mm. So we have to change the way that we do things and we can't rely on councils to provide things like um, you know, design thinking, for example, the, the kind of development resource that might have actually built the buildings, designed and built the buildings they provided in the past. That's definitely gone. It's not coming back. So I think, I think there's a space there to be filled, and I think there are ways of filling it with uh, smaller groups of people who take a particular interest in their area. And that's something that councils haven't been very good at. I mean, I've heard people in, I think it was... Tottenham saying, um, oh, we've got plan great plans for the high street some time ago, so probably a different generation of politicians, but they said, um, yeah, well, first of all, we're going to get rid of all these small shops, all these little shops with, um, you know, sort of businesses in them, because they're clearly not profitable, people work, work at all hours in them, so we're going to get rid of those and replace them with something else. And I was a bit horrified at the time, but then I realised this is just the way that um, planners think. They want a different plan, a new plan, they want to bring something in to replace what's there, but shops like that have a very distinct value that really isn't researched and understood. There's some great work on what's going on in Peckham Rye, for example, research from the LSE from Susie Hall, and um, similar streets where, in fact, you've got shops and uh, premises of various sorts being cut up into small units and sublet and sublet, and it's a really good way of uh, generating, um, generating momentum and change in a place and filling it full of people. Great. But um, what you also have, sorry, as well, when councils are cutting... I mean, I don't think councils should be allowed to sell public assets, but when they do, if they sell a big lump of land, you expect to make a profit, wouldn't you? But in many cases, like in, in, with the Elephant and Castle development, with the Haygate, in Barnet, they're making a loss. They're giving away. I mean, somebody calculated the, the value of the land at Elephant and Castle as somewhat somewhere around 500 million pounds, based on sales of plots of land in the same area. And, and, and Lambeth Council managed to make a 40 million pound loss Southern. out of that after they'd, Southern Council, after they'd evicted everybody, they kept giving money to developers. So even when they do get rid of it, they somehow, I mean, you know, it does, if it happened somewhere else, I think we'd call it corruption. Yeah. Guy in the check shirt and glasses over there, and then I'll come to you. Uh, I run a very small venue in a very small part of East London. Um, I employ local people. Um, in no small way, it's made the quality of life of people living nearby much better, which then has the downside of therefore making the area much more attractive, which puts prices up, which therefore prices local people out. So like Helen said about the shops, in Leighton we have shops that have all been done up, they look beautiful, people now go to the shops. As a small business holder, which is a very Tory expression, Am I hero or am I villain? <laughs> <laughs> You're a hero, Dan, in my eyes. Yeah. <laughs> and mine too. <clears throat> um, Ian, thoughts? Yeah. Hero or villain? He's, brought, he's pushing uh, up the house prices. And pushing neither. Up he, he's human. He's human. And um, 
you know, the, the, the idea of the hero and the villain is, is again, like with gentrification, it's, it's not appropriate. I mean, you there, there is no way. The only people who are morally obliged to be right are politicians. Actual, real people <laughs> do what they can. They, they attempt something in their own lives. You, you, you found a business that, you, that works for you. You've done your best with it. It works. It helps. The, the larger implications of that really don't have to be your concern. The, the, the great sweeping implications of moves that are taking on projects, enormous projects like the Olympics or something, is something that can be debated because it's affecting the microclimate of the entire city. You know, what the, the polarity of shifting there, the, the uh, removal of so many things, the spin that you get before any of these big projects is always a story which would be contradicted by uh, pretty well everyone here, is that there's nothing there. Anytime you move, invade an area, you describe it as being a wilderness, uh, totally absent of life. And when you move in to examine it, you find it's crawling and heaving with life. There's all kinds of businesses, big and small, uh, living in a kind of nice, interesting, workable chaos that is instead overwhelmed by a, a single narrative uh, of a, a sort of a better future. And meanwhile, we're, we're in this city of uh, endless holes. There's a sort of the hole beyond the hole beyond the hole, the building that's bigger than the last building, more and more empty of content. And I think so, it's only when you get onto that macro scale of thinking that, that these questions become important. On the level that you're operating, everybody just does the best they can. James, James. serial killer guys. Um, can, can I quick, quickly add? It's just that um, I think. Uh, Ian's right to point out the difference in the role of politicians. I think a lot of the things that we're feeling guilty about, you know, um, role in gentrification, whatever it might be, go back 30 years to the start of the 80s when councils stopped building housing and housing numbers started dropping and a housing shortage began building, which we're now getting the, the wrong end of, and when um, councils started to lose resources and were unable to do the things they'd done before. So long-term political decisions have impacts now, and we think that it's something to do with the way that we're living our lives. But I think those decisions go back to a time that's you know, thought of as past. Okay, right. Uh, you've been very patient. Ask away. <laughs> and then I'm coming up to you up there. Yeah. Well, about a, just, just one little tiny thing about that. I think <laughs> you have another... You need to ask your question. Come on, let her ask the question. Okay, please. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it kind of follows on um, from what you're saying, um, that it's very easy to say, you know, local authorities should be able to deliver this and that, but they are trapped by so much legislation which forces them to go into public-private partnerships that don't benefit local people or the local authority. Um, the Haygate, in my opinion, there should be a public inquiry because um, not only because of the loss on, on the sale of the land, um, the secrecy around the viability report, um, the, the fact that many of the councillors involved in seeing that through are now working in the private sector as consultants to property developers and so on and so on and so on. Um, but of course, the losers in all of this are ordinary people. And the question is, how can ordinary people feel um, force legislative change that sort of serves their interests and not the interests of, of profiteers, for want of a, you know, of a better word? I actually live in Peckham Rye. And of course, in Peckham, there is this other side of Southwark, which there are community-led regeneration projects 
uh, you know, projects that are costing billions of pounds, millions of pounds, these are big projects, but they are coming from the community through local architects, uh, local people with experience in planning and, um, and those things. So, I mean, I think if we want the London that we want, I think there's a way for ordinary people to work alongside corporate interests and force them to work for them a bit more um, you know, rather than leaving in the hands of... I mean, to be fair, councils are often very poorly qualified. They don't have people who know how to negotiate contracts with private corporations, even how to read them properly. Um, so uh, I think, actually, you know, it's, it's about expertise and experience, and that needs to come from ordinary people if their local authorities and their councillors aren't delivering that for them. I'll quickly come back on that. Actually, tonight, at the moment, in terms of one solution, one thing people can do, specifically about the things you're talking about, particularly around the issue of planning system and viability and what can be done, at the moment, there's another meeting taking place where I imagine there'll be considerably less people. It's a group called Reclaim London. And the Reclaim London, I urge you to go and look at their website and look at their aims and aspirations, and that is exactly what they are organising to do. George to, Turner. George Turner. George Turner, who single-handedly fought back against the development of the Shell Centre on the South Bank. I made a video with George, you can have a look at it. And George took it all the way to two or three appeals. He took them to the High Court. I mean, it was a case of George Turner versus the Sovereign Investment Fund of Qatar, the Mayor of London, the Department for the Environment and the Communities, uh, the Sh Shell Mex Industries. I mean, we can't believe he's still walking around alive. He took them to... <laughs> and, he, and he represented himself. He took them all the way. So that, that's the kind of group that's organising. And I went to one meeting. It was amazing. And the people, there was people there with folders full of... They understand the planning process anyway, and they know where the loopholes are, and they're trying to actively put that on the agenda, set things on the agenda of every mayoral candidate going into the next month, so not taking a party political line, so that all mayoral candidates will look to reform the planning system, and particularly the viability. Why is it not transparent? Why is there a revolving door between local government and developers? It's a system kind of built to be corrupted and, and, and uh, perverted in a way, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You've been very patient, and then thank you. Um, guy in the black top over there, um, kind of on the corner, on the corner. Oh, sorry, this lady first. What yeah, did you say? Um, yes, sir. I read the Evening Standard this evening on the way here, and the sort of second page article is about an estate in South London called Angel Town, which is effectively a, a city within a city. Yeah. Um, and I just wonder, when we look at regeneration and gentrification, that estate's been regentrified or regenerated, and it's still not working. You know, there are, there are gang turf wars and all sorts of things like that. What do you think the answer is in bringing London with London? So stopping this divide, stopping the walking past the homeless people and, and having hipsters on one side and normal Londoners on the other? That's a brilliant question. Um, well, I, I read the article too, the Angel Turn article, and it was really depressing, and not least, least because... Although I go through Brixton a lot, I don't. I have been to Angeltown. I didn't recognise that place, and it shows you how close things are to places that you think you know, and uh, they can be completely different. Mm. I think that maybe there's a spatial thing with Angeltown in, in that the, it did seem to be in a particularly odd situation, completely surrounded. Actually, the estates that surround it are often, well, some of them are being dismantled. The Stockwell Park estate right next door, which was part of the discussion, is um, is being dismembered in a way that has you know, other implications. So it's a very difficult balance, I think. I think the uh, you know, change can come in a way that brings things that you don't want alongside things that are necessary. Improvements come alongside uh, people being excluded. And one of the things that's really struck me is how similar what happens in London now is to what happened in Victoria in London. So I've looked at places like Agar Town, which was Pine St Pancras Station, 
and was demolished completely for the railway. It was sold um, almost overnight in what seems like a suspicious deal between the Church of England and the Midland Railway Company. It, was, it even had a half-built church, which was demolished before it was completed. And the reason places like that were cleared was because they were in the way, and they didn't matter. But the press spent a lot of time building up Agar Town and other places like it as the worst place in London. And if you look into what it was actually like, it seems to have been, um, A, badly neglected by people who should have been looking after it, providing road surfaces and lighting and so on, and B, um, just somewhere that was full of working-class people doing things that were a bit grubby and easy to look down on. There's an amazing article talking about uh, people self-build houses. People built their own houses in Agar Town. This is the 1840s, 50s, 60s. And they were condemned for this because it was suspected strongly the only time they could have had as working people to build their own houses must have been on the Sabbath. So if you got your own house, you must have built it when you should have been not building houses. <laughs> so a really, a really interesting level of, um, of invective. And you get a lot of that around places in London too. I mean, sink estates, common, common phrase, mm. extremely loaded, very unpleasant but you know, almost an official way of describing places like that. So I think lack of, lack of provision of services for places like Angeltown and the fact they can be ignored because they're slightly out of the way, you'd have to go through them. I think those two things are very similar to what, what the Victorians had, um, albeit right in the centre of London. But they cleared those places out, mostly. Um, I am conscious that we've got a lot to cover uh, and about 35 minutes left to cover it in. Yeah. Um, I'm going to start moving on. Someone up there has been holding up a hand a very, very long time. <laughs> okay, very last question on this one, and then we're going to move on to talking about some of the good things about gentrification, about sorry, not, some of the good things about changing London and how changing London is exciting. We can come back to this if people want to carry on talking about terrible things <laughs> uh, <laughs> and how we're all going to hell in a handbasket. Um, Hi, I'm really sorry for making you wait so long. That's all right. I've got a bit of a sore arm, but it's all right. <laughs> um, I just wanted to say that I've just uh, finished uh, studying uh, the construction industry. Uh, and in essence, the, sort of the profit margins that you have in the construction industry are quite narrow. And I'm not speaking for the, the mega companies, because I have no idea. That I'm sure they have to make their profits, and they'll make their profits however they can, in a good way or a bad way. But the average builder or developer, the small to medium enterprise, is not making a massive profit. So if you're expecting the, I mean, if the, the government or the state expects the private sector to solve the housing crisis, and then, then you're going to have these issues where gentrification and the bad side of gentrification is going to come in, where people, developers are building to make money to sort of increase their profit margins. And so for that reason, you'll have people who'll be priced out of areas. And areas which become more attractive will become more expensive. So you have to have, I think, it's, it's a shame where you have uh, the sort of the old times where local authorities would provide housing has stopped. Because I think that would perhaps balance the issue where instead of just simply doing it for money, you're doing it for the service. Now that's, that's been got rid of. Um, I think there's been a slight move towards um, giving the power back to the people, sort of, in the Localism Act. And that allows people to create neighborhoods, neighborhood plans, where you can actually have a proper say in the development future of your area. And I think if, it's, you know, if people are really, really sort of 
worried about how their neighborhood or their local area is going to change in the, in the future. They should get up and make a little community a neighborhood uh, and, and, and sort of really sort of... Uh, that's a really good point. Up. Like, I, I, as, a, as a young reporter, I used to have to go and cover a lot of council meetings and planning council meetings, and it has never, ever failed to depress me how few members of the public you see going to see planning applications going through or any interest at all in things happening until all of a sudden the planning deal's been done and then everybody's up in arms. It's really, like, is there a, is there, is there a question there to be asked around communication of, of big changes in areas? Well, there is, but I think... Um People don't have a lot of spare time to take things on. And what government is really asking people to do what it used to do for no money, which mm -hmm. I think is a big imposition in some ways. So um, only certain groups of people, people with um, you know, jobs that allow them to get out on time, jobs that um, have flexibility around them, I like to get involved in that. And then you've got um, you know, sort of class issues around getting involved in decision-making. So I think there are serious limitations, particularly around expecting people to get more involved in planning their area. Um, but... I think the thing is, with um, private developers, I don't think they're going to solve the housing crisis because there's no real evidence they can build as many houses as are needed at all. And they never have. And, you know, really, if you're a developer, the more houses you build, the, the lower the price is likely to get. So it's not in your interests. It has, there has to be other ways to solve the housing crisis, which I think are basically, in short, um, councils building houses, housing, a land value tax to, to fund them to do that, and some rent controls so that people can live at a reasonable, affordable rate until such time as housing is more widely available. It's pretty depressing though, James. If we don't go along to planning meetings, which are tedious, yes. the council's just gonna screw us over. I mean, surely well, we should be able to trust them. I mean, what are they doing? Like, oh, you we weren't here, well, fuck it. We'll just give all this land to Barrett Homes. Thanks very much. I mean, what's going on? That's really, you know, I mean, when you see what happened, I mean, there's video footage of this. I think the Barnet Bugle is a great source. You know, you see what happened when the people from, from um, the West End in the state went to their planning meeting to try to raise their objections with the local council. They were thrown out. You know, so um, trust me, you will feel very unwelcome if you go to a planning meeting mm. and you try to get your voice heard and raise your objections about what's going on. They don't like it. We've had it in Leytonstone with the redevelopment of the Fred Wig and the John Walsh Towers. They don't... Consultation is a one-way process, really, in reality, in reality. That's definitely a reason to go along. Yes, ladies and gentlemen. Can we quickly talk about some of the good points of change in London? Um, like, it's not all disastrous, it's not all horrible. Um, there's plenty of areas that have changed for the better. Um, I certainly know, um, uh, certainly from my, my mother-in-law, I remember when Canary Wharf was being built, she was like, never go there, it's evil, they've knocked down the docks and it's, it's all taken over that place and now she works there. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of change. You know, London, isn't, London isn't yet like Paris. There's a wonderful mix of, um, of people of different incomes rubbing alongside each other and doing it very well um, in a large portion of the time. Um, Helen, yes. let's be a bit cheery for let's 10 minutes or so. It, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think, um, referring back to my previous point, I think there is, you know, people just need to expand what they think of as, as where they can make a success of things in London. I referenced Croydon briefly before, but um, they're trying to make, don't laugh, everyone, they're trying to make Croydon a tech hub and a real creative Croydon's hub. Croydon's a cool place. Exactly, it's got great... Yeah, but you're all, you know, I've heard some titters in the audience, you know, it's, it's got that connotation of being slightly a joke within London, and it's not at all. It's got great transport links. <laughs> that they're, um, they're trying to make it 
uh, a place where young tech entrepreneurs can come and build businesses, very, very low rents, and develop the area like that. And, you know, those kind of areas, they might not be very fashionable at the moment, but I think there is the real opportunity to do something there. With that, you know, building the tech community, you've got developing cultural facilities. If you really like Box Park, they're bringing one of those there too. You know, those sort of areas, there really are pockets of positivity in the gentrification story. Yeah, there's a guy who's opened the Rise Art Gallery uh, in Croydon, and he's uh, transformed a whole part of a nearby estate into like loads of street art and all the kind of stuff that you see in Shoreditch now that everyone comes along and sees. But it's in Croydon. And Croydon, <laughs> seriously. Um, anybody from Croydon? Anyone from Croydon? Anyone from Croydon? Get to Croydon. Yes. Yay, Croydon. More Croydon. Cool. Yeah, there is yeah. a snobbery about yeah. Croydon, definitely. It is. No, the architecture. <laughs> I, I entirely disagree. I think that um, I'm a big fan of Croydon, and I think I think there is a lot of snobbery, and that that's um, it's funny up to a point, but it's not that funny really because it's a great big chunk of London that people pretend doesn't exist. And I've been on journeys of people going through Croydon who should know a lot better, who are kind of like, oh god, look at this, just awful, awful, and they kind of retreat to. Um, to Stoke Newton or whatever it might be. But, <laughs> sorry, I didn't pick that out. Didn't, didn't pick that out any, it was the particular people I was thinking of. Um, but Croydon, is, Croydon has an incredible range of architecture. It's like an experimental city. They built this, this high rise in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, it's all there. It's, there's nothing like it in London. And then next door, you have the Victorian town, which is still there too, more or less, but you don't go through it unless you go down the hill to look for it. It's a really interesting place. It's suffered because the council's been and they've closed, they pulled arts funding, closed lots of really good venues, but things are happening in Croydon. Um, the Rise Gallery I've been to, it's quite small, so that's just a start, really, but mm. the, the cinema, the David Lean Cinema, which was closed by the council, fantastic little art cinema, has been reopened through pressure of use, so people carried on running it in the pub next door for five years, I think, and eventually they were let back into the cinema and given the projector pack, which the council put in storage, and now they're running cinema again, so... I think there, there's a lot in Croydon that people would, would do well to check out. Yeah, and it's not just in Croydon. There's so many fantastic examples of, uh, of, of this kind of pressure that I think Londoners are feeling, um, bringing together communities in really inspiring ways. Um, the saving of the Annie Arms in Tottenham. Um, uh, certainly, actually, um, even councils are looking out to help. I know we've done a bit of council bashing um, this evening. Uh, ones with Barrow Council has, I think I might have said earlier, has been issuing Article 4 directions to cover 121 pubs to stop them from being turned into flats because they're of good community use. It's an example of councils actually shaping, using the law to shape the communities that they want to keep valuable community assets that they under recognize. pressure. I mean, in, in uh, Waltham Forest, we, we have the same thing now, and that came about under pressure because we lost Waltham Forest lost over half of its pub stock. That's when the council took action because people were putting pressure on it because we were about to lose three or four more pubs in one go. People like, hang on, this has got crazy now. We'll have none left soon. So they don't do it on their own. Mm. You know, they have to be put under pressure. Mm. Yeah, but there was le le legislation came in, I think, with Margaret Thatcher. That brewers were only allowed to own 2,000 pubs for some strange reason. So that sort of some of the big brewers at that point just decided to get out and sell off for property reasons. And they made it difficult often for independents to come in and buy them. So there's a very, very kind of difficult climate in the, in the situation was created that led into this 
thing of people finding it was it was more valuable to turn their pubs into flats. Mm -hmm. But obviously there are there are bright people now who are rescuing pubs and bringing them back. But there there are going to be fewer of them around. They didn't define a neighbourhood in the way they once did. Literally, yeah. there was one on every corner, and that that moment is gone. There's a good news story though with the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, which actually it is the street corner. All the other streets that go with it have gone, which is often the case. You're just <laughs> left with the pub. Um, but it's on the site of the Royal Vauxhall, of the Vauxhall Gardens, which were you know, a site of entertainment for London going back a long way. And it's been a gay pub since the Second World War, possibly the first in, in London, but no one's quite sure because it's not official history, really. But it's just been listed by English Heritage, uh, not really because of its architectural value, but because of its cultural value as a gay pub, which is quite a big precedent. So I think that addresses something that's really missing from the way that the, the, the things that people have at their disposal to protect places that they value. So architecturally, it's, it, it, it's, not, it's not about the architecture. I mean, even with fine buildings, it's not about the architecture. It's about the architecture and the people. So you need to be able to address the combination. And I think listings that allow that to be recognised as well are really important. So I, I wonder if that's a precedent that will be really significant. And that was only uh, a month or so ago, that listing. So... Mm. Uh, you get that, your buildings listed important. as assets of community value. You can mm. get a local building, yeah. and that helps you to protect it. I mean, one of the things, I suppose, I'm trying to find something good to say about gentrification. <laughs> I'm really struggling. <laughs> Dan's beer shop that wants to tap, that's good. Um, mm. But the, something I don't think is emphasised enough, you talked about galleries there mm. and creative things, and uh, often they're the first victims of gentrification as well, actually. They're the people that kind of increase values, and they're the, usually the first ones priced out, as happened around Hoxton and Shoreditch, famously. But... You know, the, the value of the creative arts is huge to the UK economy. If we know, I mean, I'm not a capitalist, uh, but if you want to argue on their own terms, the creative economy is worth something like £70 billion to the UK economy. That's a serious chunk of money. It employs lots of people. It generates an awful lot of wealth. So we should be making more of that because I think one of the dangers of gentrification is that London's going to lose that economy because it just won't be able to sustain people. Won't be able to, and they'll, they'll go to other places. People will suddenly get on a train and realise Birmingham's an amazing creative centre. You know, Newcastle, Manchester, Liverpool. I Berlin. mean, I don't think Berlin, there's anything wrong Ed with that. Edinburgh. Is there that you know the creative industries get spread a little bit far, further afield than London? I, I think, think it would that's be a good a thing. thing. But I also think it's a positive thing as well to emphasise that that we do have this amazing creative economy in London. That we should. That is a good side of gentrification. If that does encourage that, yeah. we need to make sure that we protect it and help it grow. It is, but the, the capitalist model of um, that sort of change is that people have no choice but to go somewhere else. Mm. So mm. we I don't think... really want to be in a situation where people with the least resource have to go and have to move away, have to live somewhere where they, they don't know anyone. I mean, that's, it's no. going to happen anyway. It is happening already, but it's not. Mm. We shouldn't design things so it has to happen. Um, there was a chap here with his hand up. Are you still willing to... Yeah. yeah. Can we quickly <laughs> grab a, a mic across to you? Sorry, I, I saw you here. Not nearly enough time to say all the things that I might want to say. Um, I, you know, for what it's worth, I'm about to move to Croydon, sort of, uh, to, to, to Crystal Palace, but that's because I've just been priced out of Peckham. Uh, well, welcome and, to a new world. Yes, yeah, indeed. And um, I'm kind of curious, and to a certain extent, priced out of Peckham. You know, I'm, you know, I work in the heritage and creative industries. I'm a, a trustee at a local art gallery at Peckham Platform. In a way, I, I'm sort of a harbinger of my own demise by, by kind of falling <laughs> victim to that kind of displacement. But I'm really interested about 
you know, where is the voice in this debate for the, you know, for the not middle class people who are being displaced? Uh, you know, I, I don't really know the kind of class background of the people on the stage. I, I know Tom a little bit. I can't really speak to that, but it feels like we're having a fairly cerebral, to, to, to my mind, slightly disconnected discussion, theoretical discussion about gentrification, when where is the representation for the communities that are being destroyed by things like the benefits cap, uh, you know, by the kind of extreme downward pressure on wages? I thought one of the really striking things in the, in the article about the Angel Estate was the kind of anecdote about um, one of the people that David Aranovich stays with who is working 16 hours a day and most of her income is from tax credits. And these kind of things and how they play into gentrification and the fragmentation of the city, I think there's a big question as well, you know, in the same way that these types of communities are denied a voice in debates like this, in discussions like this, is exactly the same uh, as they are disenfranchised from the political process and aren't made aware of uh, things like the planning process, the council meetings that take place, those processes are not uh, enacted in a way that is engaging or inviting for those communities. In a way, I think those processes are, processes are deliberately conducted in a clandestine way to deny the engagement of those communities. Um, uh, thank you. I, I wish I could say I'm, <laughs> I'm not here all week because I'm being displaced by, by gentrification. J James, I, th I thought, you, you know, to a certain extent, you said something which I thought, you know, has superficial appeal, but which I, I think really doesn't kind of stand scrutiny. You were talking about the exciting things to do with what I would associate with the early stages of gentrification, where you have a creative influx that interplays with an existing diverse community that is class diverse, that is racially diverse. That is extremely exciting, but it's a very, very short phase in gentrification. What we're already seeing in a lot of development, particularly around East London and the Olympic Park and beyond, is uh, what Adita Chakraborty has very memorably described as, uh, you know, kind of gentrification without the creative phase. You know, it's kind of absolute capital developer-led gentrification. I feel like that's what we're moving towards very quickly. I'm really worried that the city is being hollowed out, you know. I've just cha changed jobs, but I remember chatting to, you know, one of the guys that cleaned the office where I've just left a, an office in Islington. He had a two and a half hour commute by bus to get in to work. All the people that are servicing the city are being pushed further and further out. A lot of the industrial capacity that Tom spoke about is, is being pushed out. We have, uh, you know, buildings, physical developments that I'm not convinced what the lifespan of a lot of these kind of so-called luxury apartments is, you know. Probably they're going to last 10, 15, 20 years max. They're going to be collapsing in upon themselves. So it feels very short-term, very shallow, very naive to talk about, to, to big up these positive aspects of gentrification when I think probably most of the people in this room can see the way that it's all gonna kind of fall in upon itself. If there aren't serious, serious changes around the kind of public policy levers that can be used, some of the things that Tom spoke about. Nobody's mentioned Enfield Council as well and some of the things that they're doing to try and create a bulwark against these processes fighting the Department of Community and Local Government to, uh, you know, 
deny, deny the imperative to sell off council properties, buying back private properties at auction in order to make them available as social housing. Councils are under pressure, but there are things that they can do. I think it's really weird. I think there's an existential issue for Labour councils in London that they are allowing their voting base to be uh, kind of forced out. Uh, you know, even Boris Johnson has spoken about the balkanisation of central London. Um, a lot of these Labour councils, if they don't fight against it and find these creative solutions, we're going to have a blue city and, uh, you know, whatever your politics are, I don't know, but that would be a much less diverse city as well and it's very concerning, I think. Uh, thanks for listening to yeah, that ramble. Very good Cheers. point. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what's, what's, what's uh, interesting? I, I, I agree with Forrest then, I would have thought exactly the same thing. I don't like the old beard scratching thing, although I do it a lot. Um, I grew up on a council estate, never owned property. Does that make me working class? I don't know if it does. It's a new area, isn't it, now? I can go either way. I can turn up the Cockney or I can go a bit posh. I grew up in Buckinghamshire. <laughs> uh, it depends on the environment. But I've been going around council estates talking to people, trying to help them document it, really, trying to get the word out. And what's been funny, as I've gone around and and talk to public events, yes, often it is me going along and trying to invite people from the estates along as well. But funnily enough, one of the things that came up uh, about eight months into it, that people were saying, well, what about a voice for the, the private renters? All the focus is on estate regeneration, but where, where is the voice for the, for, for the hipsters, for the fucking hipsters? You know, they're being left out of the debate. So I think it, it shifts around, but I think you're right. And I think also, we've framed it with gentrification. I think the processes you're talking about, that's, that's not gentrification as I understand it. This is wholesale kind of moving of assets from public into private on a scale that isn't about someone doing up a Georgian house or opening up an artisan bakery. I think mm -hmm. it's much, much deeper and broader than that. So I think we need to talk about it. That's regeneration. That's... Uh, estate regeneration particularly is a massive, you know, 160,000 people calculate a group called Feminist Fightback, go to their website, they've done some great research on this, they calculate 160,000 people are being displaced by estate regeneration. Land valued at about 60, that they've valued, at 62 billion pounds. Feminist Fightback, have a look at their stuff. Yeah, I think um, there's a lot of points you make are very important and uh, I think this is an illustration of, of why you need, we need to be particular about the problems that we're discussing. I think gentrification doesn't, it doesn't lead people in the right direction. It's too general a term to explain that particular issue. And I, I don't think anybody could really disagree that London is getting less diverse in terms of the amount of money you need to live here. And that's an extremely bad thing. That those processes can only lead to uh, problems for the city, problems which won't be solvable by the time that they start to appear. So. I think this is a very, it's a crucial thing for London now, but equally I think we need to talk about exactly what's happening and why, and then challenge the people who are doing it. I mean, you know, Labour Council is supposed to be engaging in what, what might have been seen as gerrymandering under previous, um, you know, previous eras, certainly in terms of shooting their own, their, themselves in the foot over their electorate, but it's not clear what their ultimate objective is, what the London they're trying to build is going to look like, or why they're trying to build it. You know, the right. Elephant Castle being a good, good illustration. We've got 10 minutes left and I want to get around to a couple more people. So, make it very quick. Okay. <laughs> Please. Um, Pressure. Evening. I thought I was going to the Reclaim London meeting. I met up with my friends and they, they brought me here, so that's interesting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Same thing happened to me, actually. I was supposed to go Absolutely. There. <laughs> um, but a couple of years ago, um, a group of black people approached Locality, which is a national organisation that deals with the localism act and trans... Uh, 
the redesign of neighbourhoods. Um, and I was just picking up on the point that this gentleman down here said about the diversity of people involved in, in this issue. Um, we've had to, in the last two years, work, well, we've worked with locality. I mean, we've worked as volunteers, and obviously it's quite a large organisation, to push and cajole them to do a number of things that actually means that now, two years later, they've got a slightly more inclusive agenda. <sighs> because we felt that their starting point around community rights were too high for most black and minority ethnic and, and poorer communities. And it meant that you had to be time rich, uh, particularly to engage in a lot of these issues around planning and development and transform transforming of neighborhoods. What we've managed to do with a group of volunteers from Un University College London, the, the planning department, uh, postgraduate students, uh, in the last year is to produce a report which comes out on Thursday this week at the beginning of Black History Month. And what we've done is looked at the changes that have happened within the African diaspora in mm -hmm. relation to community spaces, because given that the commun those communities have been here since the 50s and 60s and often had 25-year leases from the 80s particularly, and now those leases have been uh, up and lots of local authorities are not renewing those leases. And I live in Tottenham and there's many examples of that happening under our nose. We've managed to map 150 spaces around the country. Uh, both in terms of using online maps as well as capturing those stories. And it's not a pretty story. And there's a lot of work to be done. And what we're finding, because race isn't on the agenda for the, for the government per se, as it was in the 80s and 90s, it means even trying to get a discussion that talks about diversity and equality at the national level is re has been really hard to do. However, we've come up with a series of recommendations which are for government and for some of the national agencies that, uh, that are actually dealing with this, as well as for our communities. So we're looking for people who'd want to collaborate with us going forward. Um, but, and so that work is just beginning to emerge, but it, it, it's tough. Yeah. And we come to places like this in London. I mean, I was born and brought up in London. I was brought up in Deptford and Lewisham, and now I live in North London in Tottenham. And I come to meetings like this, and I find myself, unfortunately, you know, one of a very few minority um, when actually the issues are affecting our community, you know, quite um, significantly. Yeah, good point. Can you tell? <laughs> can you tell everybody where they can read this report on Thursday? Yes, um, it's going to. If you look on the locality website, it will be on there. It's called A Place to Call Home. And it's a story of African diaspora, community assets, and what's happened over the last, well, 20 years, and particularly in the last few years. Yeah. And then within, sorry? Oh, thank yes, you. and you can, thank you. <laughs> thank you. And you can follow us on Twitter, the organisation that I represent. Sorry. Yeah, go on. <laughs> <laughs> it's an intergenerational organisation, deliberately. <laughs> awesome. So the, uh, it's at Ubele Initiative, U-B-E-L-E. Bailey Initiative, at Bailey Initiative, also you'll find it on there. Uh, but there's a national press release that's coming out tomorrow about it as well. So if you're in, in that network, you'll pick it up. But the Brilliant. locality website, it will be on, on Thursday. Thank you. Um, I saw a load more hands up earlier on. Did you want to? <laughs> no, one up there. Uh, we'll go down here, then I'll come back up there. Oh, yeah, the front bit. row as well. Um, right, lady on the front row here, please. Sorry. Um, Hello. Hi. Um, just a couple of points. So, um, talking about solutions or temporary ones, I'm a property guardian um, and I'm an artist. <laughs> and um, it, it strikes me that um, gentrification and regeneration 
like you pointed out, it, the effects are not about choice. Um, and so I think it's important to, um, when we talk about improvements that are made, when we can see some of the positives of uh, regeneration, I think we have to ask, who is that for? Um, so I suppose a particular question would be um, for Helen, just to sort of elaborate a little bit on who um, those improvements might be for, and also given the definition um, of affordable housing. Um, I don't know if people are aware of, of what that means, but it's up to 80% of the market value. Um, and so, yeah, there are other things, but I think that's a really important thing to try to address. Well, I think, um, are you referring to anything specifically I said before, or just generally what, who, who the, what the positives of gentrification are? Just generally. I, th I think. It's I think you said. Yeah, I think you, you said something about trying to expand where we think we can be successful. Yeah, I think. Um, if you, whereabouts, whereabouts do you live? Um, I I'm a property guardian on the Thamesmead estate, so it's due for demolition in the next few months. Okay. So I'll move on to another one. Um, I'm not an expert on social housing, but I'll certainly try to answer the first part of your um, question. So I think it's about um, thinking about when you, if you're a creative, where you can, where you can live, and where thinking outside, perhaps you know, zones one and two or three or whatever, you know, and thinking about Greater London, thinking about the suburbs, thinking about where perhaps there might be an opportunity to live rather than just the immediate, uh, the immediate um, areas that are associated with creatives in London. So East London, I think it's about thinking a little bit more laterally about where there might be opportunities, where there might, you know, there might be more availability of um, places to rent at a cheaper level. Um, I don't know if my, my fellow panellists want to come in on the broader social housing question, because that isn't my expertise by any point. It's actually my generation. I might not have the expert on social housing. <laughs> no, We're all in trouble know. in that case. Well, um, just, what's the question about social housing? Um, the question was about... Be, being, a, ooh, is it on? being a property garden isn't being a, being a tenant in social housing. It's something different. But um, the question was related to affordable housing um, and how, I suppose, when, def when defining... Um, What's, what's what's affordable? affordable. Yeah. It's I mean, clearly not right. affordable. I mean, well, the affordable house, I mean, that was the government, isn't it, made a shift, someone will know about that, made a shift away from social, uh, investing in social to affordable, and affordable, like in Camden, the gentleman from Camden, there was one scheme in Camden where there were affordable homes, you'd have needed an income of £120,000 a year to afford an affordable home. But, you know, I wrote some questions, actually, for, for uh, question time, for someone to ask in question time, and it was when Boris Johnson was there in City Hall, and so we asked him to define what social housing was. He didn't know. Boris Johnson didn't know the definition of social housing. So that's the first problem we've got. Our politicians, the people who, who drive this policy, don't actually understand what it is. But I think that's something that has to be completely redrawn. I think I believe in investing in social housing, not necessarily affordable housing. And you see these things now in the Olympic Park, which I'm no fan of at all, at the East Village. They now have three levels of rent now, don't they? They have social rent, which I think makes up something like, I don't know, 35%, is that, or 30%? When Boris Johnson asked whether this was enough, he said, I think 30% is probably about right because we want to make this a place people want to move to and not move from. Um, that was his idea of a joke. Uh, and then, there was, then they've got intermediate rent and then they've got affordable rent. Um, but yeah, that needs to be addressed. I mean, that's the sort of thing Reclaim London are doing, you know. Yeah, the so idea of afford affordable rent in London is an absolute farce. Uh, I know that 
um, across London, it's supposed to be 60% of market rate, but that means that uh, it can be anywhere up to 80% of market rate, and that means that, for example, if you're in Westminster, you need an income of 180 grand um, uh, for an affordable house. Oh, sorry, can I just add one thing about the, how that's um, being perverted at the moment, is that people, you may have seen this, actually, I think it was in the building press, someone blew the whistle, there are companies that carry out viability studies to determine the amount of affordable housing that can be included in the scheme to make it financially viable. Those people like, carry a financial incentive to reduce the amount of social housing and affordable housing included in new schemes. So people are paid to reduce the amount of social housing and affordable housing in new building schemes, which is, which is incredible that that's allowed to happen. But the, the, when you put in a proposal for a scheme, you agree there's going to be so much of an element for this, and then when it actually happens, that's always reduced. There's this sort of posthumous effect the same way as budgets always expand upwards. But the question I would, I would just like to float across was that we've heard a lot of conversation about creatives, and you were saying how, how much income the creative industries generate. Well, I think you know, you're going to have to look at what these creatives are. Is it someone who works in IT and um, you know, generally someone who does interesting things on a laptop, someone who designs clothes? I mean, there are all kinds of... It, the industry of being creative is one thing. What's lost in this and what's now impossible is the kind of uh, the creatives that are invisible, that are really doing the, the difficult things. It's much harder for them, over, as I've noticed, you know, the, the more obscure and difficult poets, the painters who are resolutely hanging to things, the kind of old, old style of artist. Someone, we, I think we mentioned earlier, Leon Kossoff, who was a a painter who, at the time of the Olympics, came back to where he'd grown up in Arnold Circus and Shoreditch, because that part of the city was suddenly very peaceful. Everybody was out in other areas, and he reclaimed the streets for himself and his own memory. Uh, and I think those kind of people are kind of becoming ever, ever, ever more marginalised and disappearing in the kind of creative industries that are visible and out there, and maybe a lot of people are involved with that. And I think, you know, we, I would like to stick up for this other sort that are not even getting into the discussion. Um, we can probably roll on an extra five or so minutes. Um, we'll take one question, one from over here. There's a big wave over there. Thank you. Um, if, 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 if thought is cause and experience is effect, and before you have the thought, there is the intention. What is everyone's intention? The government, the council, and the people. What does everyone intend to do, and how different are these intentions? I think that's the $64 million question, isn't it? In a city of 8 well, million people. That's a, that's a, that's a pretty challenging um, ask to, <laughs> to dismember the, the, uh, the real intentions of government and... Um, everybody else involved, because I think the thing about London is that it's, it, it is extremely complicated, and that's why it's interesting. But the, over, the overriding impression I get is that government and political, uh, the, the political tone has increasingly moved towards um, profits and away from social benefits. And that's partly a political ethos thing, but equally it's a, a, you know, a lack of funding situation that's allowed that to happen. But I think if London starts to lose the things that make it interesting, that make it unpredictable, its lack of predictability is, is one of the things that I like about it most, then I think, I think it will turn to a different place. And 
Um, the idea of people not being able to live in the centre, I think, is really problematic. Mm. If you go to continental cities, uh, one of the main things you notice is that people always live in the centre. You know, anywhere you apart from Paris, really, which is a very different sort of a city, smaller cities all over Europe, they're, they're residential, and that gives them it gives them an extra level of life which it can be quite hard to find mm. in inner London. And that's only going to get more the case. The things we've discussed are going to lead towards that, and that's a real problem. But equally, I think um, people people want to monetize space. They want to make space do something. So having space, physical space and intellectual space that comes from it, I think, in the city is increasingly difficult. So even the South Bank, you know, laid out for the public to use, lots of space which didn't really have anything going on in it. Now it's packed with, with things that make money for the South Bank Centre, with, um, with portable restaurants that are basically permanent. So corners don't go, un don't go ignored, nowhere gets unaccounted for, everywhere's programmed, everywhere has a reason reason to be there and a reason for you to be there too. And that fits into the, the general privatisation of public space that um, we've mentioned a few times, which I think is a both symptom and cause of um, a general sterilisation of street life and of um, unpredictability within the city. One over there. Yeah. Hi. I just wanted to put a quick word in, I guess, for a potential positive alternative. Um, I have a friend who lives in New York who is working on a land cooperative project. She's actually a teacher, so she's getting priced out of New York, which is one of the reasons she's doing it. But they have over a 1,000 members, over a million dollars pledged. You can join for less than $10 because they're trying not to have a financial barrier. And their plan is to buy up plots of land and then act as guardians in their neighbourhood for some of the range of activities that aren't entirely profit-driven to keep a mix, of, uh, a mix of different type of activities in their neighbourhood. There's another amazing place in Sweden called Rustanga where the neighbours are doing up buildings one by one and then letting them out to community businesses and they have uh, shares in their town so you can invest in the town externally but 51% is always owned by the people that live in the town. And I just wondered whether you knew of any examples of this type of thing in London or in the UK or what you thought the potential for that type of activity might be in London. It's not, it. it's, not in, it's not in London, but, and it's maybe not the same kind of model, but I did want to bring to the table um, the example of Granbury Four Streets in Toxteth, which has um, been a really uh, deprived area since pretty much um, the 80s, and in the last year or so, um, a community trust has um, commissioned an architect <coughs> uh, collective called Assemble to um, revamp and return into what were fairly dilapidated um, houses and housing projects into um, fantastic regenerated housing project that's not only the community is delighted with it, but it's also got nominated for the Turner Prize this year as an example. If you, got, you can't really get a better sort of cultural rubber stamping than that. Um, and that is um, a community-driven, successful scheme outside of London that I think that kind of model of a community trust that can be replicated within the capital. If you look um, around London, actually, I mean, this isn't a, a new thing at all, but when I was involved with the New Era campaign, there was a, a point where it was talked about turning it into a tenant-run co-op, and we thought, well, you know, where can we get help and advice about that from in the local area? And when I just looked at the amount of tenant-owned and run co-ops in the same postcode as the New Era, there was something like 25 in Islington. And often you walk past them and you don't know they're there. And actually, they're all over London. They're all around you. I mean, a good story that could turn into a bad story, but at the moment, it's still a good one, is if, uh, an organisation called CBHA. Have a look. They're currently fighting off an aggressive takeover by Peabody, actually, who are trying to take them over and privatise them. But they started up in the 80s, and they, uh, they manage large blocks in Chingford, in Leytonstone, and in Leighton. 
Um, so these things actually, you, often when you're walking past a housing estate, you might not give it a second look, but often you might find they, they do offer a very positive alternative to what is commonly going on. There's a, a very uh, useful handbook which was produced only last week by the Just Space Group, who were run from UCL, which brings together case studies of various community groups who are working to uh, defend and develop their own workspace and their own um, space for activities, for shops, for whatever it might be. So the Latin Elephant Castle, for example, is an organization representing all the, the Latin American businesses there. Or, um, well, there, there are lots of different examples, but the one that really stuck in my head was Camney Street. In Camney Street behind King's Cross, there was industry down one side of the road, student housing creeping up both sides. And the businesses at the end want to, want to keep their space, but they know that the development pressure is going to be overwhelming. So they put together their own development proposal, which will build housing, but will also keep all the jobs they've got already and add more jobs within the space. And they started off uh, apparently looking for a million pounds in funding, and now they're looking for 70 million pounds in funding. And they said it's easier to get 70 million than it is to get a million. <laughs> uh, so that seems very proactive, and it's not resolved yet. Who knows what will happen? But that's, that seems to be the kind of approach that might just work. Great. Um, I'm afraid we are going to have to draw it to a close there, um, or I'll get killed by Conway Hall, and they're <laughs> supposed to be the ethical society, and that's not very ethical. So um, I want to say a massive thank you to you all for coming. It's been a really, really fascinating uh, discussion with you all, some brilliant points raised. Um, I've been particularly interested in, um, in the variety of things that we've been talking about, especially uh, giving a voice to the people that currently don't have a voice. You've been talking about that as well. It's really great points um, that really aren't raised enough in this debate. Um, some positive stuff, a lot of uh, unhappy people as well. Um, I've got to say, at the back, if you've been interested in um, what these guys have been saying today, um, there's books at the back, um, Ian's, Tom's and John's. Um, I believe if you want to get them signed, they might be, do, they might be so kind enough to do that afterwards as well. Please do um, support them with, with a book or so. Um, a big thank you to all for coming and a massive thank you to my panel. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, yeah.